0: And as a result, this is going to, I think, permanently change the way people think about access to banking. There are people that would have never used a banking app prior to coronavirus that you have to ask the question, will they really want to go back
1: Listening to Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay, a podcast that empowers financial brand marketing, sales, and leadership teams to maximize their digital growth potential by generating 10 times more loans and deposits. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series, where James Robert interviews the industry's top marketing, sales, and fintech leaders, sharing practical wisdom to exponentially elevate you and your team. Let's get into the show.
2: Greetings and hello. Welcome to another episode of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. I am James Robert Lay. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series, and I'm excited to welcome Brett King to the show. Brett is a world-renowned futurist, speaker, international best-selling author covering the future of business, technology, and society. He's also the founder of the Neobank Movin' and has been named the King of Disruptors by Banking Exchange Magazine. Hello, Brett. Yeah, yeah. Good to see you. Good to see you. King of disruption. If we haven't been disrupted yet, I don't know (laughs) what will, but I know uh, you've got some things coming down the pipe in your mind. I'm not the king of this disruption. No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, look, um, I am hopeful. I'm optimistic that as a society, we will learn from this, but there is there's certainly elements of this that show clear systemic issues you know failure points uh, in respect to how we've we've adapted to the uh, um, the coronavirus and and I'm sure we'll get into that
2: Yeah, well, let's talk about it because, I mean, one of the things that you and I both believe is that we have already moved into a new normal. That new normal will continue to transform and evolve. We're all trying to work through this together. There isn't necessarily a roadmap that that leads the way, but it's going to take courage. It's going to take uh, commitment. But we're not going back. Work, education, healthcare, banking, entertainment, it's all moving forward in a complete travel in a completely new direction so what can we do what 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 can you inspire people from your lens of the world because you have a very high macro view of okay things are not going to be the same and that's okay
0: so um you know we we've shown how digital can really be utilized in uh, in the case of the coronavirus uh, shut-ins and um you know it's shown people that we can be just as effective working remotely. So there's going to be many different companies now questioning the value of having dedicated office space for staff, if that's unnecessary. And, you know, there's going to be have to be better tools in terms of measuring effectiveness of employees and so forth and being more transparent about that but ultimately if you can do your job and you don't need to be collaborating in a in a workspace all the time then you know you may not have to do that so the same works for education in fact you know a lot of people a lot of children don't have access to basic education or quality basic education and so we're now showing that we can deliver that on mass obviously there's a lot of room for improvement in that because the education sector like the financial services sector has been very slow to respond to digitization in general and they've had a bias towards sort of physical uh, classrooms but the reality is that the whole education system, I think, is going to have to change, you know, is one aspect. You know, when you look at the design of classrooms and the way we designed education to work in classrooms, and I write about this in my new book, The Rise of Technosocialism, when you look at how education was formulated back then, it was formulated uh, based on two core political drivers. One was sort of challenging the connection of church and state because a lot of education previously had been, uh, you know, back in the, the you know, 16th, 17th, 18th, 18th century, had been done uh, through, uh, through church-sponsored church sort of non-profit type uh, activities. But in addition to that, as the Industrial Revolution took place, we wanted to train our children back in those days to be uh, obedient factory drones you know, sit in the, sit and listen to the teacher. Don't answer a question unless you're asked. You know, put your hand up. And it was a production line. You go to math, and then you go to science, and then you go to writing, and then you know, or English, and you know, and so forth. So, um, you know, we we treated um, schooling and education as a as a prototype for the industrial revolution. Clearly, the way we teach children and the skills they're going to need for this century are very, very different from those as we're coming into the 20th century. So that's just one aspect of where we need substantial change.
2: Well, hearing you talk through this and you know, having four kids myself who are all in element, well, two of them are in elementary, but my fourth grader entered a very interesting program this year called connect. And I've never been happy with uh, the traditional education system because of the challenges that you've talked through. But connect is a hybrid learning model to where it's individualized learning via digital, via a laptop. They come together as a group. They facilitate a conversation amongst peers, and then they have some one-on-one, almost like a Socratic discussion. And then like practical thinking, then they have a conversation with their coach or their mentor who was traditionally the teacher what i've seen his in his own transformation and being able to handle what's going on now that they've gone fully remote it's been no big deal for him yeah so
0: well Im- imagine standing you know i want to even take it even further in terms of what we could do imagine standing at monument in london and i, I don't know if you know london very well but um, monument is a uh, It's a monument erected for the 1666 fires of London in commemoration of of that. So imagine going there and having your augmented reality glasses and switching into history mode and being able to see London on fire all around you in, in augmented reality. You know, there are... Better ways for us to teach children today. You know, um, you know, when you're talking about geometry and uh, algebra and things like that, teaching them, um, you know, in a spatial uh, uh, sense. There's so many tools we could bring to bear to be much, much better at this. And unless we really use this uh, this event to push forward with exploring those rather than just trying to reinforce the existing learning model. You know, when you when you see educators talk about VR, for example, maybe they're thinking about, well, you put your VR goggles on and you can be in a virtual classroom. And yet, um, you know, the classroom model itself, I think, uh, if you look at the likes of what's happened in the Nordics and their effectiveness there, or you listen to what Jack Ma says about this, and you know, very uh, auspiciously Jack uh, contributed a piece to the my, my new book on on the future of education you know you've got to think very differently about how we educate our, our, our kids moving forward but that's just one aspect you know we're definitely going to think differently about medicine in respect to this Spain just announced today and I don't know when you're going to air this but Spain just announced that they're going to make universal basic income a permanent that's, feature of their economy that. now yep. and so you know I started writing techno-socialism you know back middle of way through next year last year rather and so I wrote an entire chapter around the concept of universal basic income and universal basic services and I had to do a huge amount of work to try and position this as something that People who are, you know, more con- in also more conservatively politically, could see that there was a business case for um, universal basic income, but obviously we had to completely rewrite that now because all of the that opposition to that went out of the window in the space of essentially uh, two months um, you know from a time when it wouldn't have ever been considered to now uh, m- multiple countries around the world uh, doing these uh, these sort of basic income structures to support people through this period of economic uh, you know, collapse.
2: Well, let's talk about that because, I mean, that's going to directly impact what we're seeing in the banking space, whether you're on a marketing team, a sales team, a leadership team, because this whole world's getting rewritten and there's no path forward, but there's got to be something that we can at least, this is a step in the right direction. What is that at least to, you know what, we're going to go this way.
0: Well, probably, you, you know, I, you, you can hint at financial inclusion as, a, as an example. That's, that's been a consistent problem in the United States. We see, obviously, right now, we have a real problem in the US with people who are excluded from the banking system being able to access the CARES Act disbursements, you know, because, yeah. you know, if you send them the cheque, what do they normally do? They go to a cheque cashing, um, you know, facility. Those aren't open mm-hmm. right now. And so they don't have a bank account. They can't do a remote check deposit capture because they don't have a bank account because they don't have a driver's license or a passport to get a bank account. Um, That's part of the reason they're excluded. Most of the people who are excluded in the United States are not excluded because they can't afford a bank account. They don't meet the documentary requirements to open a basic bank account that's why they live on debit cards and you know cash with check caches and this is again um, you know a fundamental problem in terms of the way the system's designed particularly around uh, identity uh, access so if you look at india the way they solved that problem was the adar card they created a national identity program to solve that problem and in doing so created a basic value store for everybody but that's just one aspect of sort of the issues in the the banking system, or more broadly, obviously access to banking, you know, starts with being able to get a bank account. But then it also is, uh, you know, in the US we've treated it. You know, we, we had branches uh, were the key mechanism for financial inclusion and for access to credit. The 1977 uh, the CRA, the Community Reinvestment Act, uh, sort of enshrined that in law. But we know today that even despite the fact that we have the second highest branch density in the world in the United States, we have 20% of households excluded. So branches don't work to create financial inclusion. Now, you know, in the midst of all of this, we should be figuring out ways to solve those problems. So, helping uh, create identity schemas, helping create uh, digital value stores uh, in the cloud that give people the ability to sort of create a, a you know, a, a virtual debit card on the fly and things like that. And and th- we're getting closer towards that, but the old system was clearly resistant to those changes, and uh, um, you know, sort of try to prevent that um, in. You know, and we have to change laws when it comes to the CRA, as an example, and that's pretty hard to do unless you get true bipartisan support. But that doesn't even get into the effects of financial inclusion, which the more serious effects are inequality. And so you uh, reinforce with these systemic uh, issues, you know, uh, lack of access to credit, for example, and and access to credit, you know, to be able to buy a car so you can get a better paying job or, you know, being able to afford your own home so you're not paying rent uh, or or all of those sorts of things, um, you know, are uh, clearly an issue for a developed society like the United States as is access to basic health care which is dependent on employment today so if you lose your job which it's projected 30 plus million 30 million plus people will due, due to the coronavirus you know, those 30 million people by virtue of the fact that they've lost their job won't have access to to basic health care so if they do get the coronavirus not only do they have to pay 12 or 14 hundred dollars for the test they may be uh, stuck with tens of thousands of dollars of or hundreds of thousands of dollars of uh, ICU care and so forth that they they can't afford. So these are systemic failures in in my mind, you know, because ultimately what is the purpose of an economy if not to provide for the well-being of its...
1: Technology has transformed our world and digital has changed the way consumers shop for and buy financial services forever. Now consumers make purchase decisions long before they walk into a branch, if they walk into a branch at all, but your financial brand still wants to grow loans and deposits. We get it. Digital growth can feel confusing, frustrating, and overwhelming for any financial brand marketing and sales leader. But it doesn't have to, because James Robert wrote the book that guides you every step of the way along your digital growth journey. Visit www.digitalgrowth.com to get a preview of Banking on Digital Growth. It is a strategic marketing manifesto that was written to save financial brands, and it is packed full of practical and proven insights you can use to confidently generate 10 times more loans and deposits now back to the show
2: and that's an interesting point because you talk about the idea of job loss job displacement it's not only going to happen now with covid-19 but then also we got the the idea of ai which you've written extensively about but i've been looking at how is banking going to change? How is health going to change the, from the lens of the company of one, the solopreneur, the gig economy, because that is continuous. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing that now uh, with COVID-19, people are trying to like take on jobs here and there just to keep income flowing in.
0: And, you know, it's the, it's one area of the economy that has uh, survived fairly well. And yet, you know, if you think about what's happening right now, people are getting food delivered, they're getting groceries delivered, and, they, you know, um, Amazon is delaying deliveries right now because they just simply can't get enough people working in factories and working to deliver goods and services. And, and they're they're hiring 100,000 people right now to do that. But keep in mind that Amazon is also working on technology that will replace all of those people with robots that deliver those same goods and services over time. And so, you know, how, you deal with that from a societal perspective displacement of those types of jobs you must have a plan otherwise when ai hits and automation hits then we're going to have exactly the same thing okay we're not going to be shut in but the economics economic effects of this will be very similar um, based on uh, technology based unemployment from automation and it's not you know you can say oh we'll just stop robots let's stop robots will make sure people have jobs. But you know what? You can't do that with the current market because the market rewards efficiency. So the market is going to be pushing and pushing these companies to make greater profits and to displace humans. That's the way the market is is designed. And so as we've seen right now, you know, you've even had politicians, you know, suggesting trade-offs that people go back to work and we sort of try and create this herd immunity. But in the meantime, millions of people might die and some people are saying, well, that's acceptable to get the economy back to work. That's a design flaw. That's a design floor in capitalism.
2: Well, and that's one of the things, you talk about this idea of reformed capitalism because what we're dealing with is really big, big issues. We're talking about education to start the conversation, the future of work, that then transitions into finance, Work is also correlated with health care. How can we pick these apart? Uh, like, Because I'm seeing there's opportunity for oh, it's, banking. It's opportunity. Yeah. Banking to start to merge health care and money. Like The way that I'm looking at it is like take care of my mind, take care of my body, take care of my money. Because it's a person's financial well-being, is their physical well-being, is their mental well-being. It's all interconnected. So, I, I suspect in
0: the future that we'll be able to have access to some basic levels of services for healthcare, which will be distributed through the economy. but. As uh, the technology improves, we'll obviously have the capability to monitor our healthcare in new ways. And so, right now, we're working on sensors, and you know, we have heart rate monitors, you know, built into uh, uh, heart rate straps we can wear. We're on our Peloton or our Apple Watch on our our wrist, and you know, in the future, that may be embedded in our clothing or or, or similar. Or we could ingest uh, small computers. You know, uh, there's a, a Proteus is a there's a, uh, a, a chip designed to do this, actually, right now today, it's not. I'm not talking about science fiction. You can ingest this uh, capsule. It, it, it works for about six weeks. It uses your stomach acid as a type of battery to power this thing and sends a signal wirelessly to, to your smartphone and then to your doctor. And so, if you think about healthcare in the future or health insurance, it's probably not going to be uh, rearview focused. There's not going to be focused on what happens if you get sick and whether yeah, we like, pay you. Like- or not. It's going to be real time and it's going yeah. to be based on monitoring your health. So, your smartphone linked to an AI in the cloud will know you're getting sick well before you do in the future. And so, as a result, um, this sort of preventative approach to healthcare costs will dramatically reduce the cost of healthcare. The really interesting conundrum of that is for people who are arguing against universal healthcare, there'll be a point of time somewhere in the near term future, like you know in the next twenty years or so, where it will be more expensive to launch a campaign against healthcare than it will be just to implement it, because the cost of implementing it with these technologies will lower the cost per person uh, dramatically and and improve based on data that we have. This massive data set from uh, everybody will improve the capability of diagnosis and treatment uh, rapidly as a result of data. Don't forget, we already have DNA data. We could have that for the entire population pretty quickly. We could have gut biome data. We could have blood work done on a regular basis. Combine this with the data we get from real-time sensors, and it dramatically, radically changes the way we think about healthcare. So if you're thinking about the current system and making that available for everybody as a universal healthcare, then I understand why there may be concerns over costs and so forth. Even though the US is the only developed nation in the world that doesn't have a system like that, I, you know, I can see see the uh, the costs. But if you apply this technology in the right way, those costs come down dramatically. And ultimately, I think the basic health of citizens should be um, something for which every economy in the world should aim to uh, to improve.
2: It's interesting you mentioned the the Peloton because I see that you've been getting your rides up and <laughs> you, you've been spending your time there. But what I find unique with the Peloton model, particularly now in this like post COVID nineteen world, is that there, even digitally, there's still a very real sense of community, something that we as human yeah. beings long we, for.
0: Yeah, we 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 do, and you know that's that's the other aspect of this is uh, you know people still want to get together they still want social interaction they still want to touch they still want to hug still want to shake hands you know there's uh, interesting uh, sort of uh, research right now uh, you know i spent a fair bit of time in thailand i've got a place there and the Thais don't shake hands typically, they do a Y, the Thai Y, which is their, their greeting, similar to sort of the Namaste uh, in India. And and some, um, you know, postulate maybe that came about through something like a, a coronavirus disease in the past that people didn't want to shake hands. So there's a question, you know, will this put the end to shaking hands or will social distancing become uh, a norm? And I, I don't think so. I think, um, you know, once we get over this, we may be a little bit more careful, but I think a better... Uh, Uh, illustration um, is what happened after SARS in Hong Kong. So one of the reasons Hong Kong and Taiwan have done so well during coronavirus is that the modified behaviour around being shut in Being um, wearing a mask on the street and cleaning the surfaces that you would come in contact with, I mean, they were much better mentally prepared for this change. So if you were to go to Hong Kong today, you would find every building, every major building, you have someone with a temperature sensor measuring your temperature when you come in. If you've got a fever, they inform you and you, you seek medical attention. But every surface that is publicly touchable is disinfected every 15 minutes. The lifts, the buttons in the lifts are covered with a a disinfectant film that's changed uh, every 15 minutes. Um, And every person, without exception, every person on the street is wearing a mask because they know that it's not just about stopping you getting, getting the virus, but it's also about you spreading the virus when you're asymptomatic. And so that's one of the reasons those behavioral changes that hong kong and taiwan made during sars they have now got the benefit of that because you know people were much more prepared socially to accept those changes whereas if you look in the west in australia where i'm from here in the u.s and in the uk people were still going out you know spring breakers they were getting the beach at, going to bondi beach in sydney you know you had people having coronavirus parties getting together I mean, this is insane when we know the modality of of this virus already Um, and so some of those behaviors I, I suspect will become more permanent or at least will become much more accepting to make those changes next time around after we sort of do the analysis and see the effect it had.
2: What you're talking about, behavioral changes, Uh, I've interviewed Melina Palmer from the Brainy Business, who she's a behavioral economist, and that was a big part of the conversation. I think about a conversation I had uh, with my cousin uh, who spent some time in Singapore uh, during SARS, and she said, yes, Singapore was even a little bit further ahead because they had almost a whole hospital dedicated to infectious disease. Correct. And so there's environmental changes, there's behavioral changes. Systemic. Systemic yeah. changes, and let's go back to 2012. I mean, what a what a year! I think the the world was supposed to end in 2012. Yet here we are, and so is the branch because you wrote that book, Branch Today Gone Tomorrow. Why is sort the of branch... prophet, prophetic, yeah. isn't it? But, yeah, why is uh, it still here?
0: Well, you know, um, look, when I did Branch Today Gone Tomorrow, it was off the back of uh, my first book, Bank. 2.0 and it, I was just writing a um yeah, it was sort of the thinking I'd done during bank 2.0 and of course bank 2.0 sort of came out of a report I did for HSBC globally looking at the impact of digital on their business over 20 years so sort of long-term projections of how digital was going to change and uh, you know social media wasn't big but we we're already predicting sort of um Curation online and things like that through communities. Uh, we were predicting the rise of mobile. You know, I, I told HSBC in 2005 in our report that by 2015, mobile use for day-to-day access to the bank would would surpass the branch. And and they thought that was ridiculous. But in fact, by 2015, the number of digital interactions to a branch interaction were 300 to one. So it was already, you know, the behaviour shift had started. The big issue, though, is around distribution and friction. As the technology becomes better, it's clear that it becomes easier to do the sort of banking stuff that you would have done in the bank branch before. And one of the only reasons we used to go into the branch is because it was so complex and difficult to do these things in the past. There were compliance rules and processes and policies we had to adhere to. The technology is enabling us to remove that friction out of the system. And as a result, you now have these challenger banks and these unicorns and others, the tech giants, who are are doing this much more economically effective uh, than uh, traditional banks. So so if you play that out, it's fairly obvious that at some point, the same market that has uh, delivered us these conditions is going to say, branches are inefficient branches are too costly to deliver basic banking services and if you have too many branches and you don't have enough of your business on digital we're going to punish your share price and so you're going to see businesses making that choice economically now in the midst of the coronavirus of course We've had no choice. And you have, you you know, you see with the SBA, uh, um, you know, the CARES Act disbursements for small businesses and so forth, you see banks utterly unprepared to handle this via digital. And so they're going to have to fix that. They're going to have to fix that very quickly. And as a result, this is going to, I think, permanently change the way people think about access to banking. There are people that would have never used a banking app prior to coronavirus that you you have to ask the question, will they really want to go back to going down the branch when they can just punch it into their phone and do that. So I suspect that these behavioral shifts will be permanent and that many of the branch closures we've seen during coronavirus, which have been temporary, will also become permanent as a result. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to have no branches. We will have branches. But as as a branch banker, you're going to have to fight for a business case to keep your branches open in the future instead of the other way around where we used to have to fight for digital budget because it was seen as competing with the existing branch network that's the big change that's going to come out of this
2: yeah let's talk about that let's talk about the next steps because you know Peter Diamandis with uh, Singularity, he has his six D's roadmap yep. of everything that's going on. It's really becoming reality faster than I think many people had planned for. We knew it was happening, but now it's forced change, environmental change, consumer behavior change. I'm at a financial brand. I'm leading this financial brand. What is one thing as we wrap up today's conversation, which, which has been great, so practical at the macro level, bringing it into the micro level, what is the one thing that you would recommend for me as a leader to really hone in and think about and take action on over the next 12 to 18 months, because look, it's, this is not going to go away overnight.
0: So the basic first step is make sure you can deliver every service you deliver to your customers digitally, without a without a physical signature on a piece of paper, without having to go to a branch. That, that's essential, not just because you're giving customers choice, but also because from a uh, behavioural shift and economics perspective, that's clearly the way things are going. But once you're able to do that, then that's where the fun starts. That's when it gets really interesting because now we can deliver you know, the utility of the bank in real time through this digital layer. We can now start to really compete on the basis of differentiated digital experiences. This is not putting a credit card in a mobile app. This is now saying, well, contextually or experientially, or based on some behavioral trigger, um, like when you walk into the grocery store, If I know you don't have enough cash for uh, groceries, yeah, bang, I can offer you a line of credit and you can get access to it uh, in real time in the store. I don't need a credit card. I don't need a piece of plastic. I don't need an application form or a signature. So it's that experiential design piece where there's huge opportunities for differentiation
2: and that's to me that's like you said that's where the fun begins once we get the basics in place the foundation that's where we can look at some of these other areas like tying financial health and physical well-being financial well-being and mental well-being making proactive offers get out of this reactive stance that so many financial brands have been stuck in today you mentioned you have a new book coming out what's the what, what are we looking at right now for for that book
0: so the uh, look i think it might be it was scheduled to come out in july we may delay that due to coronavirus is called the rise of techno-socialism, but it'll probably come out around the same time of the US elections. And so it really gets into a lot of these systemic changes and the inevitability of, of those changes, um, you know, uh, on society. And, of course, at the same time, I'm working on a big change with the move-in business. We've moved towards an enterprise, uh, you know, format now looking at yep. trying to get our technology onto as many handsets as possible to, to help, you know, Americans and beyond, uh, you know, with their financial well-being.
2: How is that going? Because I see that's such a great, tremendous opportunity for you, for other financial brands, because it's that that's the exponential curve right there.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I, for us, I guess that, you know, we started obviously as a challenger bank in the U.S. And we had some funding for that to sort of spin that off, and that disappeared during coronavirus. So, but, you know, we had always decided to sort of split the two businesses so we could focus on getting our, our tech out to as many, you know, banks as possible. You know, particularly now, you know, we've got access to the US market now as an enterprise uh, platform. And so, you know, our, bil- our ability to get this on, you know, hundreds of millions of handsets is, is sort of what we're working on. But we're working on really our tech is based on behavioral psychology and gamification and elements like this. And we bu- we're building a whole set of tools now beyond what we already had around impulse savings and contextual credit to help people use their cash as long as possible and make it last and sort of survive this uh, coronavirus outbreak financially as well. Because the effects of that will continue well beyond um, you know the, when we get on top of the actual virus.
2: That right there, the behavioral change, the coaching, the guidance, and really what I see, the accountability that people need to improve their financial situation because it's more rooted in nature and little cues, little wins, little bets. I mean, BJ Fogg, great examples of how to keep people progressing forward towards a better future. People listening want to connect with you, continue the conversation. You're all over. What's What's the best way?
0: Yep brettking.com with double T. Um, you can check me out on Twitter at Brett King. Um, same for LinkedIn and uh, on Facebook, Brett King author. Yeah. Reach out to me. I'm happy to uh, to get the discussion going offline.
2: Great. Thanks for joining me, Brett. Really appreciate you on another episode of Banking on Digital Growth. Thanks, Jay. See ya. Until next time, be well, do good, and wash your hands.
1: Thank you for listening to another episode of Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay. Like what you hear? Tell a friend about the podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify and subscribe while you're there. To get even more practical and proven insights that can guide you and your financial brand along your digital growth journey, visit www.digitalgrowth.com to get a preview of James Robert's upcoming book, Banking on Digital Growth, a strategic marketing manifesto to save financial brands. Inside, you'll find a strategic blueprint framed around 12 key areas of focus that empower you to confidently generate 10 times more loans and deposits. Until next time, be well and do good.